Fresh off the red carpet premiere of M. Night Shyamalan's Knock at the Cabin, an adaptation of his novel, The Cabin at the End of the World, today we welcome writer Paul Tremblay to the Providence College podcast. Paul is a graduate of Providence College, where he was a math major, um, the award-winning author of eight novels now, including national bestsellers, Survivor Song, and A Head Full of Ghosts, which, by the way, Stephen King famously tweeted, scared the hell out of him. Paul has won the Bram Stoker British Fantasy and Massachusetts Book Awards and currently serves as a, on the board of directors at the Shirley Jackson Awards. His essays and short fiction have appeared in the Los Angeles Times, Entertainment Weekly Online, and numerous years' Beth's anthologies. He is also an AP Calculus teacher at St. Sebastian School in Needham, Mass. His latest novel, The Paul Bearers Club, came out last summer. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. I'm so happy to be here. Great. Um, first of all, I wanted to to congratulate you on the success of The Cabin at the End of the World and, and many of your other novels that have been um, do, been doing very well. But um, and this week, in fact, um, we're talking in early February. Um, I understand you saw the full adaptation of the movie that um, was based on The Cabin at the End of the World at the premiere earlier this week. Um can you just explain what what that experience was like for you and and your family going to that premiere? <laughs> uh, it's hard, you know. It's you know, as a writer, a loss for words. But it was you know very surreal, you know, fun experience. You know, like the whole red carpet thing, and just um, you know, because as a writer, you know, most of the time you're sort of you know on your own in your own head. Um, it's certainly you know it's only collaborative towards the end when you're working with your editor and perhaps your agent. Um, but just to see the whole sort of Hollywood <laughs> movie sort of process and machinery at work, you know, all the actors, et cetera. But no, it was and it was, uh, you know, an absolute joy to be able to, you know, experience it with my family. I'm very grateful that Universal gave us extra two extra tickets, you know, for my daughter and my son. So, yeah, honestly, my head is still spinning. It's it's a lot to process, as you know, people say nowadays. Um, but, yeah, it was a wonderful experience. Um, oh, strange. <laughs> You know, especially yeah. sitting in the audience and like, you know, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't like totally stressed out. Uh, good stress, but, you know, stress is still stress. As as I watched the movie, I think I, f I felt like I had run 10 miles after the movie, just totally wrung out. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Just really one of those experiences, right? Like you didn't know you're holding your breath and then until you start to breathe again type of thing. That's very cool. Um, did I and even kind of going full circle, if you think back, I've, I've got to ask, what was that first conversation with M. Night Shyamalan like when you were, were thinking about, you know, um, that this this kind of legendary director was going to, to use your book as source material? Yeah, so it's funny, like to, to go backwards a little bit, like the, the novel is actually uh, optioned in what well, we agreed verbally and like, when I say we, Film Nation, uh, production company and I, in like late 2017, so the contract probably wasn't signed until 20, early 2018. But you know, it was months before the book was published. But then, you know, as, as typical as the case, um, you know, it took a few years to even just get like a screenplay going. And, you know, and having had a few other books optioned, which is amazing, but you know, not made like you, you know, in Hollywood, it's pretty typical, like you hear really exciting names, but it never works out. So you sort of get inured to that a little bit. So when I first heard, you know, Knight was, you know, sort of at the edges, like interested in maybe being a you know producer, I was excited, but also was like, yeah, you know, M. Night Shyamalan, no way <laughs> it's going to happen then. But like once things started happening, which was the second half of 2021, and once I had my first phone call with him, that was when that was the first of the, oh, this is really happening moments. Uh, yeah. So I had like a, 
a 20 minute phone conversation with him in November. You know, and it was really nice. He was super friendly and complimentary about the novel. And, you know, I really appreciated, you know, he was upfront with like what changes he was going to make most of them toward the end of the, of the movie. Um, no, so that was like, whoa, this is, I think this is really happening at <laughs> the first of like a couple of those moments. Yeah. And, and stepping back for a minute, just for those of us who aren't as familiar with it, what, what is um, the process for optioning a novel? You know, is that, that's, it, it sounds like that decision was made even before it was published. And so, you know, is that, is that something that you think about um, even while you're, when you get a, a nugget of an idea or the, um, or during the writing process itself, or how does that kind of come about? Um, yeah. So, I mean, I, I definitely don't think about, you know, oh, this is going to be a movie when I'm writing the book. I mean, it's hard enough to write the book, never mind putting other pressures like that on it. So, I, you know, I'm super fortunate, you know, with the success of A Head Full of Ghosts to, you know, by the time Cabin was about to be published, you know, th that book had caused a little bit of a stir and a buzz and that book had been optioned. So, you know, I have, a, as well as a literary agent, I have film representatives as well. So basically the film reps take the book out, you know, and pitch it to producers and other people. Um, yeah, so I don't have to do anything other than write the book, which is great. <laughs> that's all I know how to do. Um, yeah, so when they option it, it's essentially they're renting usually 18 months exclusive access to the to the story, uh, meaning like only they can try to get it developed. And then if they outright purchase the rights, that typically doesn't happen until like the day they start filming. You know, and that's the big that's the big check. That's the big deal is when they yeah, you know, yeah, you know, the options are nice. It's like free money you know, like, hey, they're renting the book for, you know, 18 months. Um, so, you know, the optioning stuff is exciting. It, like I said, you know, it's a fine line because you do want to, you know, and I have, you know, celebrated the potentials of, hey, this has been an option. This is great. Maybe, you know, because if you wait until something's made, you're probably never going to get a chance to celebrate. As much as there's so many shows and movies out there, it seems a minor miracle to me that anything gets made just based on my experience and the experience of other writer friends who've had things optioned in it. You know, it just everything has to go right at every step of the way um, for something to, you know, to actually make it to the screen. Um, yeah, I think I answered the question. I get rambling. Oh, Sorry. absolutely. <laughs> oh, no, though, please. I love hearing about it. Um, and it, so with the so this the film's screenwriters, uh, Stephen Desmond, Michael Sherman, um, how much interaction did you have with them during that development phase? Yeah. So like when I signed the contract, you know, I had no and have no contractual say on like getting to make comments on things, but Film Nation was really cool, especially in the beginning of saying, Hey, you know, we want your input on things. So I, I actually, I met, uh, I met the screenwriters, uh, the summer, I forget which summer it was, but I did meet them in person, you know, super nice guys, you know, enjoyed talking with them. And then the following spring, I got to read like their second draft because, you know, their first draft was just went to the producers and the producers gave them notes. Um, yeah. So I got to read their screenplay and I, you know, they did ask for my opinion. So I sent some notes um, and just about like, so that was 2019, I think I would say. And actually they had a couple, they had a director team hired or attached previous to tonight. Um, but that. That was going to be a hard thing to do because those directors had another movie they were trying to do. So like time-wise was going to be like trying to thread a needle. So, you know, toward the summer of 2019, it became pretty clear that those two directors weren't going to be able to do the movie. Um, but that was when Knight sort of swooped in and said, oh, you know, he's sort of interested. 
you know, maybe producing it. And I was like, ah, you know, whatever, we'll see, you know, <laughs> but, you know, but that's also like typical of my Hollywood experience. Like with a head full of ghosts, I've had multiple directors attached and it come really close to happening and then not happening. So I, I was just sort of used to that pattern, but obviously night broke the pattern. <laughs> oh Thankfully. yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, and without giving too much away. Um, so the novel is an apocalyptic thriller about a group of doomsdayers um, who kind of descend on a family at their vacation cabin. Um, where did this idea stem from? Are you a fan of apocalyptic fiction? Does this kind of weave through your your other novels as well? Um, so like, I don't know, as a child who grew up in the 80s, you know, I graduated from PC in 89. Uh, you know, for me, one of my, <laughs> my, especially my younger person fears was always like dying in a nuclear war. So a lot of my early writing, um, short stories that I wrote in the 2000s dealt with apocalyptic stuff, not post-apocalyptic, but really like pre-apocalypse or, you know, or during it kind of thing. Um, so this was the first novel length where, where that sort of looms over the story, as you mentioned. Um, but really the idea started with, um, it should start with a little sketch in a notebook. Like I was, I was trying to brainstorm for ideas because my agent, I mean, my editor actually just rejected a novel proposal I'd sent. Uh, I wasn't too crushed because I, I even she sensed I wasn't too wild. Like I tried writing like a 30 page summary, which is way too long for this other novel idea. She's like, nah, you know, send me something else. She's like, okay. So anyway, I drew this little cabin. I can't draw. So it was like a rectangle with a triangle on top of it. But, you know, thinking in terms of a horror story, I looked at that and I was like, oh, that made me think of, you know, a home invasion story because people alone in a cabin is sort of a stereotypical setup. And uh, home invasion is is kind of like my least favorite subgenre of horror. You know, partly because it's so scary and icky to me, you know, because it's so realistic. Um, you know, and there are home invasion movies I think are great, but there are other ones I think that wallow too much in in the violence and stuff like that for, for my tastes. So I was actually weirdly excited by the challenge. Like, okay, Mr. Big Mouth, how would you write a home invasion story, you know, that you would want to sit through? And that was really, uh, you know, how I sort of started thinking about it and eventually wound its way into what it became. Oh, that's very cool. Um, and so I also understand that you got to go on set right uh, uh for a couple of days um how was it going to that cabin that you know started out as a sketch um and uh, you know essentially walking into your novel yeah that, so i mean if the phone call was like the first oh this is real moments that was like the second <laughs> this is real and the biggest you know probably most like mind spinning was you know going to um so i went to like a uh it was like a warehouse slash production studio place on the outskirts of Philadelphia where they built this cabin in the inside of this warehouse. Um, and they used that cabin for the interior shots. And they had a different cabin that was outside somewhere in the woods. You know, so I didn't go to that set. My two days were spent in the warehouse in this cabin. Um, and, and that, in, in the interior of the cabin, they built a full cabin. It's beautiful. I was actually kind of, <laughs> as someone who prefers like lake vacations over ocean ones, <laughs> It's like, man, I was kind of bumming out. I was like, is there any way we can put this cabin like somewhere on a lake? Because it was like beautiful hardwood floors. I know that's sort of beside the point. But uh, yeah, so I like when I literally when I got there, uh, a producer brought me in and walked me through some of the offices briefly. And I thought like the cabin might be somewhere else because I saw a big giant tent outside. But no, it was in the warehouse when we walked in. And I just walked in through the front door right before I think they were going to start shooting. And they were... <laughs> you know, Ben and Jonathan Groff, like tied to chairs. And there was Dave Batista and the other actors and M. Knight came over and gave me a hug. And that was the most like strange part. And that was like whisked off to a bedroom of the cabin. 
you know, to watch on the monitor what they were shooting. So yeah, that was, it didn't feel like I was walking. It's never felt like, oh, this is what was in my head. Cause you know, I, I lived in that book for 18 months when I was writing it and I have imagined different things. However, um, it did feel like, wow, this is a really cool version of the story. This is, you know, the actors, especially, I think really get the emotional connected with the emotional core of the story and the characters. Yeah, so I wanted to ask a little bit about that uh, because you talk about Dave Bautista um, and his character Leonard in the book. Um, most people would know the actor from uh, Drax in the Marvel movies right. and he does many other things, but that character is written with an enormous amount of empathy and is is um, it struck me in reading the book that the character uh, himself has a lot of empathy for the others, uh, other characters, and then the reader, um, the way you've written him, uh, I think has a lot of empathy for that character. Um, and so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about how you weave empathy into writing um, books that are horror, scary, thrillers, mm -hmm. uh, because I think I think that that um, you know, I, it, how that plays into writing these. Um, these characters who may be a little outside of the box, let's yeah. say, <laughs> um, must be it, it must be part of the calculation. So I'm just wondering if you talk a little bit about that. Sure. I mean, I think I tend to try to approach all my characters from a point of empathy, and so that's different than sympathy. Um, you know, empathy is the want to understand why why they're acting like they're acting, or, or why they're you know what why are they making these decisions. You know, Redmond, I would say, is probably the only character in any of my books that I've written without sort of an empathic approach to him. You know, he he was definitely, of the four invaders, I think he was the most, like, mustache-twisting, villainous kind of character. Um, <laughs> yeah, but so it was a hard line to walk for, for Leonard because I, obviously, the biggest horror is what the family experienced. But I did think that for some of the invaders, their experience was a horror, too, and the idea that you know, they are believing that they have no choice, that they, you know, they know they're doing and presenting terrible things, but they felt like they have no choice. So I thought that that part of it was really interesting to get a little of it of that from their point of view. Just the idea of 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 believing you have no choice can be very seductive, right? Because it it abdicates you of responsibility. Like if you believe you have no choice, that you have to do something it's almost like, oh, okay, and that, then that what I do is not my fault because I had no choice. Um, you know, and obviously things like that have happened <laughs> in horrible, you know, real circumstances throughout the history of the world. Um, you know, to me, that that's, you know, believing you have no choice or you're going to do something, That's that, that breaks the social compact, right? Everyone has a choice, um, you know, and deciding to not to choose is a choice kind of thing. So I did want to explore that a little bit with Leonard and Sabrina in particular, you know, in the latter half of, of the novel. Sure. And, and I do, so reading the novel, and I'm interested to see how this translates in the movie, um, certainly choices is a choice is a big part of um, kind of the, the theme that, that runs through this. Um, I, I had read, and I'm wondering now that you've seen the movie, that, um, that the kind of the first two acts of the movie um follow the mm -hmm. the book pretty closely yeah. um but then there are um some things at the towards the end of the movie that that diverge from um from what you had originally written so now having seen the movie um can you talk a little bit about that divergence how you feel about it and then how you know fans of the the novel may feel about it when they when they see it yeah i mean i have no idea what fans of the novel are going to think i mean i think what i can say for 100% like from my point of view is that the movie is beautifully composed and shot 
and directed and the, and the performances are amazing. Um, you know, so the ending, it's hard because, you know, I'm so biased that like, you know, the story is a story in my head. Uh, you know, any sort of fairly drastic change to the ending, even though I said the movie is is very sort of, uh, uh, I mean, the movie itself, there's a lot that, there's a lot from the book that makes it to the movie. I don't know why I can't speak all of a sudden. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the ending, I'm, I'm still frankly kind of mulling. You know, I think, yeah, that like if I was to be objective and or as objective as I could be, you know, I would say that, you know, I definitely wear my personal beliefs on my sleeve with the novel. You know, and I think, you know, M. Knight is doing the same with, with the movie in terms of, what, you know, why he went in a certain way. And there is, you know, I don't want to spoil things, but there's an, an event in the novel uh, that doesn't appear in the movie. And I think that both the event happening in the novel and the event not happening in the movie are both like a fulcrum of where the uh, the choices that are presented sort of go in different directions. Sure, um, okay. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, this isn't a spoiler, maybe a tiny spoiler, but, you know, I miss, <laughs> it. you know, the movie's ambiguous for a while, uh, but I miss that ambiguous not lasting <laughs> throughout the whole thing or the ambiguity not lasting throughout the whole thing. But at the same time, I also know for a large commercial movie that's probably something <laughs> boardrooms full of people would be like no you can't have yeah. an ambiguous ending <laughs> um, sure. so yeah i mean i prefer my ending better just because it's such a personal thing to me but at the same time you know uh you know i i, I enjoyed the movie i think it's really good and thinking about that ambiguity i think it plays into uh what i wanted to ask about too is that you approach the novel with um, uh, shifting perspectives. So your e different scenes in the novel are told from different points of view of the of, of the characters in the book. So um, it, I think that plays into helping with the ambiguity because you're not seeing everything from one point right. of view or one, um, one perspective. So um, did you know you were gonna approach the book that way right off the bat? Yeah, I think early on, and mainly the driver for that was I knew the opening chapter was going to be from Wen's point of view and when is seven going on eight years old so I was like ah, I can't do that first person that would you know that would be really hard to do a seven eight year old person have it being readable not like cutesy kind of thing so that, that pretty much like knew I was going to be versions of third person for most of the for most of the book although there are a couple of instances where it there's like a third person plural chapter and the the very last chapter actually goes oh, to right, we yeah. uh, for uh, first person plural um so i did bounce around a little bit but it was never like a, a like a, so never a first person um yeah i mean there are certain points in the book that i felt like it was important to have different perspectives on on sort of the same event that happens um you know just to help sort of with the ambiguity um of the story and you know part of the way i wanted to present the ambiguity which is very similar to how we did it in a head full of ghosts as well is i never wanted to, to feel like i was withholding information um, although I'm sure a lot of people think I am at the end <laughs> um, of this book, I wanted it to be more like, no, that you have like this, all this information, this glut of information coming at you and it becomes difficult to discern what's really happening or not. Um, and, and to me, that mirrors like our 21st century lives, right? Like in the age of misinformation, you know, the, how do we find the truth out of all this noise, out of all this stuff that's continually thrown at us? Um, that's kind of how I, you know, in particular, this book, I wanted it to feel that way. Yeah, that's that's so interesting. Um, the the kind of how it serves as a metaphor for for that and and the choices you make within that context, right? Right. So that's um, that's really interesting. Um, 
I'm going to switch gears for a second just sure. to talk a little bit about um, about your other career, uh, <laughs> which is as a math teacher at St. Sebastian School in Needham, Mass. Um, you've been in there for 25 years, more than 25 yeah. years, I think, right? Yep. So, um, uh, and that path you set in motion here at Providence College with, you, you know, getting your math degree um, and continuing on at UVM with, for your master's. Um, so, you know, what is your, doing it for 25 years, you must, you must love it. I'll make that assumption. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so what do you love most about being a teacher? What, you know, what does that bring to your life in a way that, that helps complement um, what you do for your writing? Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think, you know, what I, you know, one of the things I enjoy the most is just the, the social aspect of it, you know, getting to meet the students and, you know, and working with the other teachers. I mean, that's something that is, you know, obviously more collaborative, especially in the math department where, you know, we have awesome teachers and, you know, we'll give extra help to each other's students and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. I, I felt like, you know, teaching helps keep me young, like just being around young people, like and being exposed to, you know, their opinions and their hopes and, and their dreams and, you know, and their emotions. It helps me remember what I felt like, you know, as a teenager um, and as a young adult which I've used in my books. So I've definitely put my students to work. <laughs> I mean, from a writer's perspective, it's always been like this daily, amazing lesson in voice because, mm. you know, the kids will have, will have slang in our school. That's, you know, a mix of sort of, you know, country cultural wide, but you know, things are definitely Boston specific. And then there are things that are school specific. And then three or four years later, there'll be like new sets of words that maybe built off the old ones. Cause the younger kids want to have sort of their own sort of, you know, uh, in language with each other. <laughs> so yeah. it's, it's, you know, it's fun to see that morph and change, um, you know, from the writer's perspective, um, you know, otherwise, you know, the school has been so supportive and, you know, of, of my writing endeavors, never once pushed back on it. In fact, like, you know, there was a time where like, I went to a book festival in Los Angeles and they helped pay for it and stuff like that. So, you know, they've been, you know, you know, part of the things that the school talks about is, you know, uh, is to encourage lifelong learning. So, you know, it's, you know, they, you know, they often pay for faculty to get, you know, advanced degrees and, you know, it's really good to see them, you know, it's not just words for them. They, they really encourage that part of it. That's cool. It's great that you uh, found a place like that landed there and have been yeah. able to, to, to be there for so long. I would say that, um, you know, uh, in some ways that seems like it plays into the, the mission of, of Providence college um, mm. in terms of this idea, you know, when I think about, um, you know, the Venn diagram maybe of those people who are AP algebra teachers and, and best-selling novelists yeah. and probably that, <laughs> that calculation is, um, you know, somewhere in the middle of that is, there's probably not too many people there, uh, you know, so you're that's very distinctive in that way. Yeah. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about, you know, your time at PC, your PC education, and maybe what helped to uh, encourage you or to inspire you to, to pursue these two career paths. Yeah. So, I mean, I definitely sort of blossomed, became who I was at PC. Like I, I didn't have a great high school experience. I went to a big public school, you know, was, you know, super skinny and small and very awkward and not like very confident. So like going to province college was a chance for me to, you know, to really start over. Um, so, and it was an amazing four years. I really enjoyed it and have, you know, lifelong friends. And I, you know, I met my, you know, my wife, Lisa Carroll at the time and, you know, Lisa Carroll traveling now at the school, <laughs> you know, so, so many more memories and, and really that the start, the earliest startings of, of me thinking about writing, uh, you know, started with my last, one of my last classes that I took at Providence college, uh, which was, 
So I ended up weirdly like a math humanities double major because I kind of screwed up the education part of it. Um, but as a second semester senior, I took basically like English 101 or Lit 101. So I was in there with mostly freshmen. But uh, the professor, Professor McLaughlin, uh, was amazing. It was like one of those, you know, almost like a stereotype of like, a, you know, an English teacher, you know, really connecting with a student because he was a big punk music fan. And so was I. And he he was able to draw that out of me into you know, an enjoyment of reading. So I remember in that class, we read Joyce Carol Oates's, where are you going? Where have you been? Um, and another story called Greasy Lake by T.C. Boyle. You know, and I wrote a, an essay comparing those <laughs> stories to something that happens in a Jane's Addiction song or something, you know, I don't know, something <laughs> awesome. like, yeah. <laughs> you know, so he encouraged like the love of music. So I just remember that class specifically stories. And I was like, oh, I didn't know people wrote things like this. Like it really excited me. Um, yeah, and shortly after that, when I graduated, Lisa bought me Stephen King's The Stand. And then when I went away to UVM for two years for a long distance relationship, you know, I fell in love with reading uh, first. Uh, and that's, but, you know, it started with, you know, Professor McLaughlin's English class. That's great. Do you have any other favorite PC stories from the time you were here? Oh, you know, I, I mean, so like my love of punk music really started at Providence College, you know, you know, working at WDOM was a ton of fun. And, um, I mean, that that's sort of actually been my first sort of passion really was music. Like, uh, honestly, like if, because I started messing around with guitar my senior year in Providence, I had friends teaching me stuff. And, you know, I tried teaching myself. And honestly, if I had a time machine and someone said, hey, you could be like a semi-successful punk musician or a writer, I'd probably choose <laughs> the music. But I found out I was a better writer than a musician, unfortunately. Um, no, it's like it was Providence. It was where I sort of discovered myself. You know, it was it might sound corny, but like the idea that, you know, after in high school where it's uncool to try hard and uncool, you know, I, which is still the case, like you watch, it's just part of the growing up and figuring out who you are. But at Providence it was like, oh, okay. You know, I, I took a, a very wide range of courses, you know, math and philosophy, et cetera. And it was like, okay, I sort of figured out it's okay to be passionate about things, you know, sp specifically in the arts and it's okay to, you know, to want to try those things, which I did for both music and writing and writing stuck. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Uh, has PC worked into any of your novels? Um, with the Paul Bears Club, definitely, which just came out, oh, which came yeah. out, you know, this past summer. Uh, you know, there's a big chunk of the book that takes place in Providence specifically. Uh, but the book is essentially <laughs> very fictionalized autobiog autobiography, but it imagines like a different path I might have taken if I had dropped out of Providence College when I was a junior to try to become like a punk musician. So yeah, there's awesome. definitely parts that mention PC and, and a lot of Providence talk, you know, particularly Thayer Street and old clubs like Club Babyhead that I used to go to when I was at Providence. Uh, yeah, so there's, there's a big Providence connection to the Paul Bearers Club. You mentioned the Paul Bearers Club um, and you said hardcover came out last year, but I think uh, is paperback releasing in a couple of months? Yeah, so the paperback will be releasing in March. Yeah, the, the hardcover's still out there. The hardcover is kind of fun because I mentioned it's like this found memoir autobiography. Um, so the character who's essentially me writes it, but this other character who found the found memoir, like uh, she makes comments in the margins and crosses words out and stuff like that. And in the hardcover that's printed as red ink. So there's two, like her comments are red ink and the regular is black ink and the paperback, you know, that's an expense. So the paperback, everything will just be black ink and it'll still be cool. But um, yeah, the hardcover is like just a nice physical artifact. It's a fun, hopefully a fun, fun read. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, so I, I'm, I know you've been so busy this year. Um, 
uh, but it's actually a reunion year for you, right? Yeah. I'm not sure if you're aware of that. So oh, I am. <laughs> maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe we'll, for you and your class, um, maybe we'll see you back on campus. Or definitely planning on it. Oh, no. Uh, you know, my wife, you know, and friends were all excited already talking about booking hotel rooms. Yeah. Oh, excellent. That's great. Uh, so look forward to seeing you then. Um, and just wanted to thank you so much for, for talking to us today and being part of the PC podcast and the, the, the PC family. Briar family. No, thank you. This is this is wonderful. I really appreciate it, Stacia. Thank you for listening to the Providence College podcast. I'm Stacia Walmsley with producer Chris Judge, a member of the class of 2005, who has produced more than 300 episodes of the PC Pod. Thanks, Chris. Check in on Mondays for new episodes available wherever you get your podcasts.